0: there, and good evening. My name is Randolph J. and you're tuned in to Mondo Rando Radio on MidtownRadio.ca. The premise of this show is a simple one. Each week, we'll be hosting intimate and interactive chats with familiar friends and fascinating strangers about their passions could be kayaking small engine repair microbiology or anything else that gets them excited our guests will be sharing their fondness for the various subjects that help shape who they are and occasionally they may even share their strategies for dealing with everything else of course any opinions and experiences shared will be unique to each guest and should not be taken as official advice to any particular listener if you'd like to learn more, you can find us on Facebook under Mondo Rando, on Instagram at Mondo Rando Radio, and you can email us anytime at RadioRando at gmail. Com. Our special guest today is Ian Walsh of Blackthorn Productions to share his love of swords, sword fighting, the history of swords and sword fighting, and all things sword. You can learn more about Ian through his website, blackthornproductions.ca, and I'd encourage you to visit him at that site after the show. But for now, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Ian Walsh. So Ian Walsh, what got you into swords?
1: What got me into swords? Well, it's always been an interest since I was a kid. I've always liked things medieval and, you know, unusual, historical, if you like. Um, always making swords out of wood as a kid, bows and all kinds of stuff. Um, so, it, I mean, the interest has always been there. But what really got me uh, sort of on, the, on the, the road to using swords was, um, one, the medieval thing, but two, finding out about stage combat. And I, that happened in high school. And then when I went to university for theater, it went on even more from there because I realized you, you can't just play with them. You can use them in films and you can use them in theater and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So that's when I really started doing all my research into the different types of swords, what you could do with one sword, not with another, uh, all that kind of thing.
0: Was it what was it about the medieval period? Was it just because it was so happy and carefree, and everyone was living in, <laughs> well, in a it, kind it of paradise <laughs> until the ripe old age of twenty? <laughs>
1: oh yeah, well, it was far from that. Okay. But um, it, it, I guess it was that that magical aspect of it. The the what most people think of of the medieval period the the courtly love and the um, the knights in armor. Jousting on the battlefield and, oh, sure. and uh, on the on the uh, the tournament field and that kind of thing. Yeah. So th- there was that kind of aspect to it as well. Yeah. The,
0: the magical and, aspect. and when and when we're when we're young and when you, when you first get into the medieval period, oh. it's, it's all Robin Hood. It all seems like a lot of fun. It doesn't. You know, we exa- don't see well, the, the dark yeah. side. Just play fighting at that point.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and you said Robin Hood as well, and that was also an influence as well. Even though you know, there, there's lots of. Uh, myths about robin hood and and we don't know if anyone by that name actually existed and if there was anybody like that but it's it's that the myth the legends and and all that kind of thing really does sell to the average person and where where i've deviated from that is going into more of the accurate history in which where the with swords especially because there's a lot of misconceptions about what a sword is and you know what it weighs, what it does, um, how it was used, that kind of thing. So th-
0: there's a lot to, to look into uh, in that aspect, right? And I, I'm assuming that once you once you learn all you can about the medieval period and the swordplay there, then you start looking at swords from previous, because they've had swords longer than the they go back further than medieval period.
1: Well, it? they they used to be made of of bronze um, previous to. Uh, previous to steel or iron Mm -hmm. um and there were even examples of weapons made of copper uh, Mm -hmm. before they they figured out the technology to make bronze so it it goes back quite a long way uh, you know in in history um i I mean the use of a sword is is pretty much the same now as it was then um what what dictates how a sword can be used is the style of the sword
0: yeah, and I imagine it all goes back to rocks and sticks, and then gradually into, into swords and and so yeah. da- now, so is the medieval period that that became your your period. I imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah. The twelfth century, especially with the the like the end of the eleventh century through to the end of the twelfth, was the first three Crusades. Mm-hmm. You know, to the Holy Land. So that that was an interesting time. I mean, I'm not a, a religious person or anything like that, but the history of it and why things happened. Um, and I always liked chainmail, which was the predominant armor at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, so for um, those who don't know, what is chainmail? Well, chainmail, or properly referred to as mail, it's an interlinking rings of iron at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, each ring is then closed with a, a small metal rivet. Sometimes they would alternate uh, solid rings and riveted rings to speed up the process, but it was a, a very time-consuming process. But for technology for the time, it was top of the line. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'd always heard that it was it was either chain or it's mail, but it wouldn't be the both. And mail is is that is the kind of metal that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, well, chain mail is the modern term for it. Mail right. is is what it would have been referred to back then.
0: Gotcha. Uh, okay.
1: In, in an accurate way. Yeah. Okay. Because mail, I believe it's it's the French or the medieval French for mesh or net, which is oh, okay. basically what mail is. That makes yeah. sense.
0: Yeah, I, I I can get on board with that. I understand that. That makes that that makes sound reason to me. Well,
1: that's what I tried to do: make it <laughs> simple enough or easy enough, should I say, for people to understand it now that don't have a concept.
0: Right, because you too teach people about this. You do teach, you know. I
1: do. Yeah, I mean, I teach stage combat in drama classes in high schools. Mm-hmm. Um, we also go into the grade four classes and teach the medieval unit on on medieval history. So mm-hmm. we do all kinds of aspects of that, including a bit of a fight demo for them.
0: Right, and you do the costumes and the all yeah. the all the uh, paraphernalia and all because you and you you also do the Renaissance fairs, do you not?
1: We do. I mean, obviously, with the pandemic, that kind of was kibosh. They're starting to happen again. Um, as to what we'll be doing in that respect uh, in the near future, I'm not sure. We just mm-hmm. finished doing our own event called Knights Fest, which was at mm-hmm. the Guelph Youth Music Center. Uh, after two years down, it would have been our sixth year doing it, and that mm-hmm. was a, a fantastic success. Over I think it was over 600 people throughout the day mm-hmm. uh, came out to it, so it's still an interest for people. You know? Right,
0: I, I think I caught you on the news during that. It was pretty. It looked pretty cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was that was nice to see. CTV has always covered us for yep. that, but I've never had a chance to see a lot or any of the the newscasts. And I think that was probably one of the bigger ones that they've done. Mm-hmm. You know, because coming off the pandemic, everything's opening up again, and. I think it was one they, they covered a little more.
0: Right. Okay. Now so let me ask you, so the community, the sword play, mm-hmm. the sword fighting community, the rena- medieval was not a, a complimentary phrase. They didn't coin no, that until it until the Renaissance, correct? It
1: was yeah, it was coined after that. Renaissance, yeah. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was used at the time of the Renaissance yes. because it was a it was an awakening, it was a new yes. beginning for a lot of things, art and uh, across the board. The right. funny thing about that is though, just again, one of those little tidbits I like to throw in, um, the 12th century, which is my period was looked on during the middle ages as a little Renaissance or an early Renaissance, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes called the high middle ages, because it was the time of all the, the, the start of universities being built, the cathedrals being built. Um, so learning was starting to higher learning was starting to really come into being, mm-hmm. um, But everyone focuses on the Renaissance because it it just I don't know what it was. It was bigger, obviously Um, happened at different times for different countries, that kind of thing. But it, it kind of started and started to sprout a little earlier.
0: Well, and of course we we should remember that no one ever says these are we're about halfway to where we're going. (laughs) It's all everything is modern as far everything that's ever been made has been made at the time, which is exactly right up in the present. So there's nothing was ever made in the past; it was all made in the present. (laughs) So you got it, yeah. People People do forget. Pardon me. People do forget that. Well it's easy to forget because we I always know. assume that when we look back we call, we call it the medieval period which exactly no one at the time would have called it <laughs>
1: exactly that's it it was just today
0: yeah uh, it's, it's, it's as if you wake up and say we're, we're now in the meanwhile <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway but anyway uh, okay so 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 your period is the the 12th century uh, so right. what could I don't know if you can walk us through culturally you mentioned the the Crusades obviously what else was yeah. happening kind of in the that period?
1: Well, like I said, the the universities across Europe, England, France, that kind of thing, they were being built. Um, I believe Oxford was one of the ones that was being built at the time. Uh, The cathedrals, things like that. Um, With the Crusades, what also happened was there was a lot of um, knowledge and merchandise coming back from the Middle East that had never been in Europe before. Mm -hmm. Uh, That, you know, spices and precious metals and... uh, exotic items, uh, mm-hmm. silks, um, you know, just a lot of stuff that people were now starting to be able to, uh, bring the, to Europe and make money from. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, if you, if you look at it, uh, the merchant class, which I guess you could say was sort of in the middle. So the middle class, you've mm-hmm. got the, the nobles on one end and the poor on the other, these, these merchants were able to bring these items back, sell them. And make money so, to the point where they could live like a nobleman mm-hmm. without all the the hassles and the connections that, and, the, and the services they had to do for the king. Mm-hmm. You know, they could live the high life without the title bogging them down or restricting mm-hmm. what they could do. And and I kind of look at it as it's, it's, it's a bit of the beginning of what we call the middle class.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it
1: true. just kept going and getting better. So there was there, there was this other class in the middle. So whether you were somebody making things for the people to sell, or uh, you were the person selling these these exotic items coming in, there was a there was a, a growth in society and,
0: and in trade. Trade was huge, and I would imagine, and I, as exactly. I'm not mistaken, a lot of the cathedrals that you're talking about right through Europe that go along the path of the Crusades from the north yeah. to the south that basically is becomes because where people are, that's where trade grows. And so that became kind of a tourist area. I, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say quite like that. But that's where all the cathedrals yep. went up. So because it's all about right. going back and forth along this kind of a tourist highway.
1: That's so, right, all the pilgrimage routes. The pilgrimage the, route that's the l- word you know, later 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 in the period. I mean those were all uh, you know many martyrs from from the crusades and other other times and other mm-hmm. other events, you know, became these pilgrimage sites. So of course things would spring up, the whole idea of selling relics. And, mm. you know, anybody, the whole idea of making money is not a new concept. No, you know, no, cap- capitalism is not a new concept. It's, it's a very old concept. Yeah. And people would do just about anything, you know, selling chicken bones as fingers of saints. So, it was very, very calm.
0: That is a fascinating. Stuff. So I, I think we may come back to talking more about this, but let's right. talk about the swords. Let's talk about sure. first of all, let's talk about the different types of swords um, okay. that that and maybe if you want to walk us through, because I, as I say, I don't know very much about swords at all. I'm no told problem. the best swords are made of Valerian steel.
1: <laughs> if you're into fantasy, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so <If you're- laughs> so walk us through when you think of a sword, you think of a big, heavy, club with you know an iron club that is sharp on both sides i imagine and
1: and effectively that's what they were but the misconception with the sword is that it's just a crowbar in your hand
0: yeah and you just
1: hit people with it and hope for the best and that couldn't be anything further from the truth the average weight yeah the average weight that we know of for a single hand which was the most common type of sword or an arming sword as as they soon became known as is about two and a half pounds Mm, That's not bad. It's not bad at all. And it's balanced. So the balance point is just up from the hilt or the cross guard. um, And you can literally balance it on your finger.
0: Got to tell you, Uh, Ian, it sounds like a crowbar. It sounds a lot like a crowbar. It sounds
1: like a crowbar, but it's a crowbar that flows in your hand. Anyone who picks up a sword, even if you know nothing about swords, if you pick up a sword that is made properly and well balanced, there's just something about the feel in your hand. I have a, uh, I think it's a Napoleonic period uh, saber, mm. uh, just a, a general munitions grade cavalryman's saber that was given to us on our wedding, mm. which interesting gift. But you can tell the quality of the weapon by the feel. You put it in your hand and it literally floats in your hand. The, the, the blade is so well made, you can flex it almost in half and it will snap back without a bend, without a, a problem. And that's the sign of a quality weapon. That was a Sabre and that was, you know, a few hundred years after this period. So there's still, there's a lot of technology for the weapon manufacturing before this, my period. But by this time, it's gotten pretty good. And it mm-hmm. only gets better the closer you get to the Renaissance and throughout the Renaissance mm-hmm. and just gets better and better from there.
0: And people are still building swords today. I mean, you yourself build swords.
1: Well, I, yeah, I don't I, I build swords in the sense that I put them together. I don't make mm. the blades myself, mm. but what I've started doing is is manufacturing different hilts. Mm. The 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 cross guard, the handle, handle yeah. the grip and the pommel, that kind of thing to put swords together. Because you can buy ready made blades that are, are fight worthy that you can mm. put together in any fashion you want. Um, so, yeah, I haven't gone into the full manufacture of the blades, but, yes, assembling different ones, different styles, I, I do do that when I
0: can. Very good. Now, you mentioned sabers, so I'm assuming yeah. a saber is a sword. Not like all sabers yeah. are swords, but not all swords are sabers, obviously. Exactly.
1: A saber specifically is a curved blade. Um, the curved blade came, if again, if I'm not mistaken, from um, the uh, Middle Eastern style of sword, uh, a scimitar Mm-hmm. Um it's quick side note on Middle Eastern blades. Not all of the Middle Eastern blades were curved. They most of them were straight edged. Mm-hmm. Um it was only a certain number that had that curve to them. Indian blades, for example, a lot of those were strictly curved weapons as well. Don't know who influenced
0: who on that, but it's
1: well, something I'm, to look I imagine
0: at. on the on a curved blade it would the be yeah. sharp because how sharp are they? They're fairly sharp. And they'd They're be sharp on curved. the curve only, but only on the one side. They wouldn't be curved on the back end of the they wouldn't be. Right. would be sharp on the back end of the curve.
1: That's right. They're they're sharp primarily on the on the front uh, of the blade or the true edge, mm-hmm. and then usually with some uh, the top six to eight inches, they would come over and be sharpened on the back, and mm-hmm. that was mainly for thrusting or backwards cut. So if you miss on the the forward cut, you can bring it back up and try to get a tearing cut with the with the top edge. But again, mainly for thrusting. Mm-hmm. So the the idea with a curve. Blade is that curved edge will stay in the cut longer? Mm. So as you lay it on, it you draw the blade through that cut, so it's a longer cut. Therefore, it's going to cut deeper when it when it hits. So as, as a murder, to, as,
0: so as a weapon, it's more effective.
1: It, oh, much more effective for cuts. Mm. Um, a lot of the heavier scimitars were used for um, for uh, executions, cutting off heads, yeah. cutting off. Limbs, uh, much in the way the Japanese katana was tested on prisoners by cutting off body parts to test the sharpness. How cheerful. And this Oh, it's very cheerful. And that was actually uh, logged on the tang, or the, the piece of the sword that goes through the grip, or the handle. Uh, that was actually logged on there, what it was used to cut. Oh um, So the, the curved blade has always been a far superior cutting weapon mm-hmm. for efficiency. Okay, so that, that's the biggest difference between a straight edge weapon and a and a curved weapon.
0: Okay, and I imagine uh, those curved weapons came back around the time you're talking about of the Crusades. That's probably when they would have come back, or sooner. They would, they would
1: have existed. They would have been brought back, of course. Um,
0: they would have existed, but the Europeans wouldn't have gotten wind of them until that period.
1: Is if, that right? I, much, well, that being said, the the I'm trying to remember the period that uh, Genghis Khan and the Huns and all that came to Eastern Europe and and did their thing in there, that also influenced, because they had the curved swords. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have a lot of, like, Hungarian sabers or, or Polish sabers, and, you know, all of those, those Eastern European countries have a history of a saber far beyond, like, into the middle uh, medieval period. Mm-hmm. Because they were influenced again by the East and their
0: curved weapons. Well, the, the Mongol horde, the the Genghis Khan, Yet. they brought so much. They they spread so oh. much. I mean, for better or worse, culturally it, and as far as weaponry goes, no group had that reach until and really no. since. Uh, the, yeah, well, this the is Genghis it, right? Khan. And-
1: and you always keep the best of whatever – if you're a conquered nation and then that kind of dies down, you always keep the best of whatever mm-hmm. situation you've got. Whether it's the weapons, whether it's cultural ideals, whether it's the food, whether – you always you always keep those things that work best. Mm-hmm. And um, with weapons and armor, it was always a, an arms race. The, mm-hmm. the armor was always competing with the sword or other weapons and and vice versa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So as the swords got better, the armor had to get better. As defensive the weapons versus got better. And, exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And was, isn't that when silk shirts got into be, well, because as defensive weapons, um, if you, if you were wearing a silk shirt, the blade wouldn't necessarily cut through the silk. Is that how that works or?
1: Well, in the Middle East, the silk shirts were worn by the, by the Chinese and the Mongols and, and anywhere that had silk, um, or access to silk on a regular basis would use silk. And the idea with silk is that it's a very, very, very tight weave. So you could almost say it was like the ballistic nylon at the time mm-hmm. uh, for, for making a vest, a modern vest today. If it's um, layered with the proper protection, an arrow, for example, is less likely to penetrate the body. Even if it gets through um, the initial layers of the armor and under padding, you've got that silk shirt is your last defense. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the, the theory behind it was that if it did get through, you would just be able to pull that shirt taut and it would help to release the, the arrow, even if it did penetrate the body or in a rough, you know, rough sort of way. Mm -hmm. Um, so yes, they were, they were ideal for helping trying to prevent penetration because of that tight weave. Uh, as far as their, the resistance to cuts, I'm not too sure because if you look at, at modern ballistic nylon, um, they're not good at stopping cuts. Mm-hmm. In fact, here's a neat tidbit, uh, a ballistic vest that is also a stab-proof proof vest, mm-hmm. take a guess as to what the material is that makes it stab-proof. Would it be silk? Chainmail. Chainmail, really? It's a thin layer of welded mail that's sandwiched between two pieces of cloth and it's put over top of um, a piece of ballistic felt, basically. It's the same material as the... The ballistic weave, but it's layered. So the chainmail is the first defense. The the almost a quarter inch piece of uh, uh, ballistic felt is the next layer. So that acts like the Gamazon would have mm-hmm. back in the Middle Ages. And then of course you've got the ballistic nylon to stop the bullet itself.
0: Okay, now when you say ballistic vest, we're talking about the what we imagine to be a bulletproof vest. Exactly. exactly. Okay. So it's the police or the military would wear. This. That's
1: right. That's okay. Right. For different purposes, that kind of thing. But the, but the ones predominantly in in England, where they, the police don't have gun, don't wear guns normally, mm-hmm. um, all of their vests are stab proof because knives are more prevalent on the street than guns are.
0: Well, wouldn't isn't everything more or less resistant as opposed to proof? Or I guess I guess yes. it depends on how. Yeah, how, but this
1: is why you've got layers. Yeah. Right. Okay. And just like in the Middle Ages, twelfth century, you've got your you've got your surcoat over the top, which is your outer layer, you've got your chain mail, then you've got your gamazon or your under padding, which was very, very thick and dense, then you have your clothing underneath. Okay. So you,
0: you've used you, the word gamazon. What is gamazon?
1: The gamazon is the basically it's a, a large padded jacket or tunic mm-hmm. that gives you the resistance to Uh, impact damage because chainmail is flexible it was predominantly meant to prevent cuts hence why butchers today still use chainmail gloves and aprons when they're when they're butchering the meat Um, the under padding then allows for a bit of resistance for the impact of the weapon
0: gotcha so against
1: against the sword or against a mace or an axe so it, it gives that bit of a bit of extra resistance
0: okay so let's let's if we can let's go through yeah. the history or the evolution of the sword within within your period, and if you want to go sure. beyond that, that's terrific. so when we're starting we're you say we're starting at the in the twelfth century
1: um, the sword predominantly used then is a single hand sword mm-hmm. uh, so only one hand can fit on it between the the end, the pommel and the cross guard mm-hmm. uh, and usually you're using that with a shield because again, the chain mail um, not as great against impact, so you have the shield to block and defend yourself against that as much as you can the sword didn't change much over that period but the only real changes were the style in the pommel which is the the end that doesn't allow your hand to slip off Mm -hmm. it's it's a counterweight as well Um, could also be used for decor you know you could decorate it and all that kind of thing Um, the uh the earlier ones there could be what we call a brazil nut style pommel so it's similar shape to a brazil nut now, that's a modern term because they didn't have
0: Brazil nuts back then. Well, they didn't have Brazil as far as they
1: knew. Exactly, exactly. Um, the more common one during that period was a wheel pommel, so just a, a basic circle uh, with slightly different variations. Um, it's not until you get out of the 12th century into more of the late 13th into the 14th that the, the pommels start to really change um, mm. into different shapes other than the common round. But that, even that, the round still went right up through uh,
0: the Renaissance, depending on the type
1: of sword. Mm-hmm. And of course, so, this is
0: also where the, a lot of decoration took place as well. But was that later? Oh,
1: a a nobleman's sword, depending on what it was used for, if it was for ceremony, highly decorated gilt jewels, uh, the swords that were used on the battlefield, less so, mm-hmm. um, but they still could be carved or, or etched with their heraldry or... Uh, mottos, or, or in the case of the Viking period, magical words, names, mm. that kind of thing. So well, it's very there, personalized.
0: It's very personalized piece exactly. of equipment.
1: Exactly, it very much so is. It
0: Definitely okay. is.
1: And then by the time of the end of the 12th century, things are starting to change. The armor uh, you're literally covered head to toe in chainmail, so it's very difficult to get through that unless you can get under the skirt of the armor or under the faceplate of the helmet. Um, by the time the end of the 12th century happened going into the 13th, they started to add plates to the shoulders, to the knees, to the elbows. So they're starting to realize that that more solid metal protection over the male mm-hmm. um, is more valid. So the, the types of the, the weapons started to adapt to that. Uh, the styles of fighting started to adapt to that. Okay. Um, also the technology for, producing the steel in the furnaces started to change. They were able to get what are called better blo- uh, blooms of steel, that, you know, it's iron or steel that were higher quality so that they could do more with it. One of the biggest changes um, that I know of with swords is with what's called the fuller, which is the groove that goes up the center of the blade. And what the predominant or the, the, the main reason for that was to lighten the weapon but keep the strength so this goes back to with them being a very wieldy or easy to handle uh tool or weapon Mm -hmm. so you would you would carve out this groove in the middle Mm -hmm. again would lighten it act like kind of like an ib. so your strength is on the edges and the curve in the middle would would sort of sustain it and keep the keep the the lightness to it As time went on, those grooves would reduce. Um, Sometimes they would have multiple small ones, but as the steel got better, they were able to do different cross-sections of the blade. So, for example, by the time of the 14th and 15th century, they're doing what we call diamond cross-sections. So the rigidity of the blade is more severe than it would have been back in the 12th century, which allows for a more tapered point. Therefore, more thrusting was done than would have been done, say, in the 12th century. We would have used the sword for thrusting, but it was a much wider tip. Uh, again, wider blade to to sustain it in battle because of the type of steel used.
0: Because mm-hmm, you don't want breaking of, off, you don't want You want it to stay in one piece.
1: This is it, right? The, the, the thinner you make a tip, the more chances of that tip breaking or, or being deformed and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But when you start to get into more of the plate armor by the end of the 13th into the 14th century, now just bashing on somebody with a sword isn't going to do much. You mm-hmm. have to start being able to thrust up under the arms, between the legs, under the under the the visor of the helmet. Um, the more protection that was put on, you had to find different ways of getting through it. Mm-hmm. So other weapons, of course, were, were developed for cracking armor. But the way the sword was adapted was predominantly through um, making it a better weapon for thrusting. Uh, you would also use the quillions or the cross guard uh, by um, turning the weapon around, quite frankly, grabbing the blade in what's called half sorting to give you more thrusting power, but also to turn it around and use those quillions like spikes or an axe and try to drive them into the weak points or through the eye slots. Of the helmet,
0: so they're grabbing the end, the tip of the sword. They're,
1: they're they're grabbing the blade of the sword, so that the tip is still is still there, and then they can use two hands to push okay. into the body of their of their opponent, which gives them more power, more accuracy, more control of it. Then, they, as I said, they could turn it around and literally use the the other end with mm-hmm. the the grip and the coolions as an axe to get through tinier points sometimes. Knives were known to actually sharpen up the ends of the cross guard. So they would have more penetrating power, which is okay. unbelievably nasty.
0: I would imagine you know? it's all very, it's all, this is all very nasty business. Ian, but I, I totally understand. Well, but I was gonna ask the So yeah, the, when they grab, I'm assuming then either the tip of the blade isn't, isn't as sharp or the, the glove they're using to hold it is just that much able to protect you from.
1: Well, they, they, they would be wearing either a male, gauntlet either a mitten or a finger gauntlet or a, a by later period a steel uh, plated gauntlet that was articulated and allows for movement they would always have a leather a heavy leather glove on the inside of it you'd and there were you'd be able to grab it with with less chance of damaging your hand but there are also ways to grab a blade, uh, safely where your, your hand isn't actually touching the edge. And this is usually when you're trying to control your opponent's weapon rather than yours, Mm. but they could, yes, they could grab the, the edges of the sword and do what they had to do. Now, a lot of people think that swords were razor sharp and to some extent they could be, but the problem with a razor sharp edge, if you've played with knives or anything like that is they can be dulled very easily. They'll, they'll roll over, they'll chip, you know, the thinner your edges. So yes, swords were sharp, but they had to sort of, excuse the pun, temper that Mm -hmm. uh, between good cutting power and, and saving the edge to last longer in a fight.
0: Mm -hmm. You 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 always gain or you always gain or lose something when you add or subtract.
1: That's just it. That's just it. So, so 12th century, you've got single hand sword, double edged, OK, um, it's more you're more able to thrust with it by the time the, of the 12th century because the the sides on a 12th century sword are not no longer parallel. So going up um, the same distance apart and then suddenly tapering to a point. Now there is a I believe it's called the distal taper where it just slowly and gradually starts to taper up to the point. But again, that didn't get very drastic, as I said before, until. Much, much later when the plate armor was there and you had a very, very needle sharp tip to thrust in between the, the chinks in the armor, mm-hmm. you know, under the armpits or, or, you know, even through the mail, it was, it was thin enough to do that, mm. you know. So, the, again, the biggest changes were the, the reduction or the taking out of the fuller, um, the increase in the quality of the steel they were using over that time from medieval to renaissance. Uh, which allowed for different shapes of straight blades. Um, both edges were sharp throughout the Middle Ages, so you could cut with the true edge or the what we call the false edge or the back edge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, but here's where I say a sword is a sword. It just depends on the style that dictates what it's designed to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Some well, swords, that pro- like any, like any tool.
1: <laughs> it, well, this is it. Now, one of the one of the other changes during this time is that the we get into what we call hand and a half or long swords these swords now you could put you could use it in one hand or you could put a second hand on it there was enough room on the grip to be able to do that and then you had more control over over the weapon and being able to take control of your opponent the downside is you no longer have a shield
0: right of course because you only have two hands
1: You've only got two hands, so you can't really wear uh, a shield on your arm and defend easily when you've got both hands on your sword. So, again, that that give and take you were talking about, mm-hmm. you, you give away something to gain something else. Um, what this allowed was better control with the weapon, more uh, uh, in close fighting, that, that you could control the other person and, and perform some really amazing moves, like some of the manuscripts showing some of these moves and a lot of groups today are reproducing these and doing them on YouTube and and other uh, video formats and they're doing an an amazing job for the interpretation and they're fast, you know, Mm -hmm. and fights don't take as long as they take in the movies. No, the reality of it is you do as, as as much as you can or as little as you can to incapacitate your, your opponent uh, as you can and go on to the next one. Mm-hmm. In, before in the case of, yeah,
0: before all of your strength is used up in just holding these things aloft and carrying yep. all this stuff, you want to dispatch them as quickly as possible. Okay. Exactly,
1: and this is why they couldn't weigh a lot because after put, a while they put
0: weight on. Sorry, what they put, No,
1: this is why they couldn't weigh a lot. Oh, because right. they wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to wield them for long periods of time during a battle, mm-hmm. or even a even a judicial duel or a one on one. Uh, fight in a tournament for example or even carrying
0: it down to the battlefield i mean it's
1: well this is it right and even even the weights when you get into the hand and a half and the and eventually up into the the zvi handers or the really big two handers where the the hilts or the grips were you know anywhere they could be like up to 16 18
0: inches long Um, and that's just the handle
1: and that's just the handle the blades could be upwards of six foot but again, even those were balanced that you could still wield it like a sword, but there were other ways to wield it that were more effective. It was more getting that second hand on it, using it for thrusting, mm-hmm. getting the hand on it to give you extra power for a strike. Um, now, by the time we we get to sort of the the middle of the road in the Middle Ages, what mm-hmm. they did was that the weapons that were used on the battlefield stayed very relatively wide bladed so that they were strong and they could, they could have a lot of impact. What they realized now was by putting one finger over the cross guard gave you more control of the weapon, especially in a thrust because mm-hmm. that was starting to become prevalent. So what they did was on the cross guard on the one side, they put a ring became known as a ring sword. Mm-hmm. So that was to protect your finger from blades sliding down your blade and cutting your finger off.
0: Gotcha. Okay.
1: That then slowly developed. They put a second one on the other side. Then they started to add side rings, which again was protection from the hand. And this was all leading up to what most people know as a rapier that has all of the rings and the sweeps and the fanciness in the guard. But and when this is, we're did. talking
0: a rapier. We're thinking we're talking about three musketeers. Period. Is that sort of a rapier uh, earlier than that? that? But yes, okay, but that's the kind we think of.
1: Yeah, you do. And mostly okay. with, with musketeers, you're thinking of a cup hilt. Mm-hmm. Which is much later again, so you've got a solid cup to protect your hand rather than rings on both sides and, and sweeps of wire and things like that. So in the 15th century, that's when this started to develop and, and these were the advancements with the guard of the, of the weapon. So this is where they realized we need to make these changes to protect the hand, to protect, you know. The, the the arm or whatever it was they were looking to specifically protect, mm-hmm. and it just kept advancing. Then the rapier became a civilian weapon.
0: Mm-hmm. So it was a
1: much thinner blade. It was not a battlefield weapon. They would not last in, on a battlefield. Much thinner weapon meant to be for sh- fights on the street or in the souths or the, the schools. Uh, and the battlefield swords were still the wider broadsword blade, as we call them today, mm-hmm. um, with the fancy stuff on them. Hmm. Then from there, the, we have what's called a transitional uh, rapier, which again, the blade goes thinner, uh, the hilts are more simplified with cups or demi-cups, and they're slowly starting to become predominantly a thrusting weapon. So no longer are, are the cuts as important as the stabbing. By the time we get into the, the end of the 16th and into the 17th century, we get what's called a small sword. Mm-hmm. Which now is solely meant for thrusting. Very very small profile, tiny hilt, little bit of a guard to protect the hand, and very tight, very precise movements. And these um, would be how
0: long? These are so you're saying these are very short? I imagine.
1: Yeah, relatively short. I mean, three foot or less.
0: Oh, okay. So it's still uh, quite with, big. That.
1: It's still quite long, but the the blade would be very very uh, slim. Mm -hmm. Um, they wouldn't be more than, I mean, the maximum at the base or the, the ricasso at the hilt would be maybe an inch and a half, two inches at the absolute most, depending on the style, but they would taper to a point. Um, they would usually only be sharpened on the top few inches, either side of the blade. So you could get tip cuts. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting, one interesting historical tidbit is for duels, which were prevalent in the 17th century and into the 18th century. They would um, put ointment on
0: the tip of the blade so that you wouldn't get an infection. Oh, because you want, you don't want to hurt anyone. With the well, sword. You, you, when you're you, sword fighting, you they, they certainly don't want you getting sick after they well, cut it, your hand off.
1: Yeah, uh, well, and actually, funny you say that. The cutting off of hands was very prevalent in a lot of the manuscripts. From uh, later in the period, uh, yeah. they actually show these illuminated drawings with guys
0: doing a move that actually cuts the hand off their opponent. Um, so it did happen. Okay. We should mention, by the way, because I just have been going on the mental assumption, I think it's because of Robin Hood and such things, mm-hmm. and Ivanhoe, that we're th- we're talking about you the UK. I always just default in my mind to the UK and maybe yes. France. But we are talking about the, the bulk of Western Europe yeah
1: um england germany spain france italy all had uh fencing masters if you if you will Mm -hmm. but they all had treatises or, or these masters that would teach in different schools and they were always competing one was better than the other i mean england was always looked down on um and uh you know certain people gravitated more to one than the other so the Italian over the German or mm-hmm. uh, the Spanish over the Italian or everyone over the English, you know?
0: Yeah. And, <laughs> well, and the vernacular, on. the vernacular, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the lexicon is, is French based. Is it not? When we think of fencing, the terms we of, use are French. Are we? Not? Yeah. I, a you,
1: lot of the terms for armor and for weapons and for a lot of that have basically stuck from the French. The, mm-hmm. it, all the cultures had the terms. Certain terms still come through on from certain cultures, like the German, the Zweihander, which is the, the huge two-hander. Or Halbert. Um,
0: Halbert is, uh, Halbert, um, is yeah, a...
1: Halbert. I can't term. remember the etymology of Halbert, but the, the majority of them that we use today are, of course, um, based on the French. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the for armor, the gorget, or the the salé, or the for helmet, um, mm-hmm. you know... It, it, brace or Cuis, all kinds of terms, but they're all from the French.
0: Well, that doesn't surprise me because we also take all of our dancing terms today from the French. And a lot of fencing is dancing, so I thought maybe you'd want to talk a little bit about that. That's actually funny because I can usually, whenever I
1: teach a class, I can usually tell the dancers just by the way they're standing. But I've had discussions with dance instructors, and we're talking about terms. And we can sit there and talk terms all day because a lot of them cross. So mm-hmm. a lot of the terms for the for the steps or the footwork are this are pretty much the same. They're, mm-hmm. they're in French and they they equate whether it's for fighting or for dancing. Uh, so well, if, you've,
0: if you've ever if you've ever danced with me, uh, you'd, you'd rather fight me. <laughs> oh, I have fun. You're <laughs> right, neither here nor there. So, uh, I I do want to thank you for being with us today, Ian. Yeah. Ian Walsh is with us, and we're talking about swords because Ian is uh, is the smartest guy I know when it comes to the how swords are put together and how they're how they are how they have been used historically, how they may be used in various contexts. And if you want to learn more about swords, because we're just this is a very broad overview of swords, and it's just a very casual conversation but if you want to learn more and get serious about it I want to I want people to be able to get in touch with you Ian so what's the best way to do that
1: uh you can email me at Lord at icloud.com
0: such a modest uh, handle you I
1: have. know but it, it works it gets people's attention uh, you good. can also check out our website at blackthornproductions.ca. Uh we're also on Facebook at blackthorne Productions
0: Inc Excellent. So, any of those
1: areas, you can get in touch
0: with me through. Beautiful, and uh, of course, if any of this info goes by too fast, or or you're just lazy like I am, you can just touch base with me, and I'll I'll pass you on to Ian, and I'm sure he'd be happy to answer any questions. And not a problem at at all. At least point you in the right direction. That's a dance term, also a sword term. It is. Yes, right. At any rate, uh, now speaking of the community, I thought it would be it'd be great if we, because we want to encourage people to learn more about swords and swordplay and i think it goes without saying but we should mention it we don't want anyone getting hurt we do not want anybody oh, of course not Just going on but i i think we should mention it but i don't think you know yeah. our listeners are pretty savvy they understand that safety always has to come first we were talking safety is a, number one. we were talking with an alpine skier a few weeks ago great guy but we're talking about some very dangerous things that he's doing and we it is nice nice to just remind people to you know use your own common sense and always consult with a professional before you attempt anything. Well, exactly. It even, even appears dangerous.
1: Exactly. Let me speak on that for, a, for sure. just a little bit, because there is, um, there are two sides to what I do. Okay. There's the medieval reenactment side. And then there's the stage combat side. Mm-hmm. The stage combat side is, is strictly related to the entertainment industry, whether it's theater, film, uh, te- television, that kind of thing. And in that, I mean, you can't get safer. Because mm-hmm. you, you're you dealing with actors a lot of the time, and you have to keep them safe on set uh, and not have anyone stabbed or hurt because they have to go on to the next episode or the next show or mm-hmm. the next film. So with stage combat, it's about presenting the reality while keeping it safe. Mm-hmm. right? So making it look as real as possible uh, while, while making sure that everyone is safe and they can do it over and over and over again without any risk. Mm-hmm. On the other side of it, we have the reenactors. And that that comes at many different levels as well. You have uh, something called uh, Bow Hurt, uh, and there's a few other names for it right now. There's a few groups that have that have sprung up, but this is the knockdown, dragout uh, World Wrestling Federation type of fighting where they are literally trying to hammer each other into the ground like tent pegs.
0: What well, has hurt uh, in the title? It's got hurt you know, exactly. right in the name.
1: Exactly. Um, so they're wearing full armor. They're they're. Carrying full steel weapons, and uh, it, it's brutal. Like people yeah. do get hurt severely. Um, that that's the sort of the top end of the of the brutality of it. But then you have all kinds of in betweens. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, you have the SCA, which is the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is a worldwide hobby group for medieval reenactment. They have uh, rapier combat with steel weapons. Again, armor standards and and full safety. They also have heavy fighting and what they use is rattan. So the same stuff they make rattan furniture out of, Mm. basically grass. Uh, And that's what they use for their swords, which emulates what they would have used in the 14th and 15th century tournaments. They would have used
0: wooden weapons so that there was less chance of killing your opponent. Yes, because even back then they didn't want the, you know, the, the life was we, we think of life being cheap back then, but when you're having a term, yeah. you still don't want one another to be removed it was more from society.
1: About, <laughs> right. It was more about gaining riches and fame than it was about killing the other guy. Same on the right. battlefield. If you could capture a noble on the battlefield, he was worth more than just killing him. Well, that's a noble little, so, Exactly. exactly well, in, in that regard, if, life
0: is cheap, you know in the battlefield. If
1: you were a peasant, yes, you were you were cannon fodder or arrow fodder. Mm-hmm. but if you had any kind of title and you were worth anything, it was worth keeping him alive for that for that payout. Mm-hmm. So the SCA is as a much safer, safer type of fighting than that. They're wearing full armor for the heavy fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe when I first started, I was told that the safety level, uh, was equated the same as tennis. Oh, interesting. So that's now it's changed over the years, and, and I haven't been in the group for a very long time, but um there are very high standards, there are marshals, so there's a lot of control over what gets done and how it's done. Right? Okay, to so this is safe. where
0: if someone wanted to get involved, that is where you would begin. Because when you talk about getting to the heavy yeah. duty, the I mean even the WWF or the WWE as it's now known, they take great precaution for safety. They really, oh, nobody totally. wants anyone to really get hurt. And, uh, and, people, so do. If and people do yeah. get hurt, but you know, just yeah. by the nature of the, the, of the, of the activity, you're bound to be exactly. injured. So the, um, this group you're talking about, uh, is where you would start if you're looking for, it's a, it's definitely a good activity. starting
1: level. Yeah. It's definitely a good okay. starting level and it gives you a broader, uh, a broader exposure to the middle ages and the Renaissance. Gotcha. So it's a good way to find what your your area of focus would want to be. Okay. Um, but then there are other, a lot of other groups that um, have sprung up over the years that fight with steel, uh, whether they're Viking groups, whether they're medieval groups, whether they are Anglo-Saxon. Uh, Regia Anglorum is a, a specifically Anglo-Saxon base, so very much early, early medieval period. What we now – well, we used to call the Dark Ages – we're talking, um, you know, Vikings and Anglo Saxons were fifth, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth century um, kind of kind of period. Okay. Um, the, the it's still classed as medieval period, but it's what they used to call the Dark Ages way back when, when they thought it was a lawless time, no no learning, and which was complete and utter
0: you know nonsense but well it nonsense. it's it, it's written by people hundreds of years later who just exactly. don't have the information available to them so it's much easier to say oh, they didn't know anything right and and then you get groups
1: like myself that kind of combine the two mm. um because I'm a fight director because I do the stage combat and I teach I put a lot of that aspect into what we do for our demonstration fighting so mm. it keeps a high level of safety but that enough realism that the audience just gets a real buzz about what we're doing. And we come out of it laughing and having a great time.
0: Right. We Where I live yes. uh, in Cambridge, I I actually look out onto a park. And every once in a while, it hasn't happened. I don't think it's happened since pre-COVID. But mm-hmm. I would just be looking out the window and there would be uh, young people. When I say young people, I mean people in their late teens, early 20s. Yeah. Sword fighting, having a, little, a friendly yep. little sword fight in the park, and this is LARPing. I've learned, which is That's live right. action role playing. Because I asked what they were doing, and this is yep. what they're doing. And this is an entirely different but related community. I don't know if you're familiar. It is. You're, I'm sure, of course, you're familiar. Oh, with totally. This. I've so done it myself.
1: Through, so yeah. walk us
0: through what it is. Like, well,
1: like exactly. LARPing in in the sense, well, in the sense of what you're talking about, the guys in the in the the parts fighting each other with foam weapons and shields and stuff. It's, it's similar in the sense that they're fighting the style of that they're doing. There's no real technique in the same way as you would go and look at a, you know, a treatise and and emulate those moves. Mm -hmm. Um, They sort of develop their own way of doing things in a lot of, a lot of the situations. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. only so many ways you can use a spear, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, it's thrust and, and a few other moves. Um, those groups are mainly there to just have fun.
0: Right. It's
1: mostly, it's mostly, yeah, it's mostly fantasy. So there's no historical aspect to it for the most part. And they're just out there to have a good time, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. If that's what you're into and that's what you want to go and do. And you just want to blow off steam. It's absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, There, there is the other side of it though, where you have the reenactment elements start to come in. And I believe there are groups like this in, in Quebec where you are actually given extra points for wearing more accurate armor and, and carrying the, the, the more accurate looking weapons. They're all foam, mm-hmm. right? Even the ones that are pre-made are, they look like weapon, real weapons, but they're all foam. So you're not, not going to get hurt as badly as if, if it was steel. Um, but yeah, there are some that really take it that seriously on the historical mm-hmm. side, um, or even on the fantasy side for accuracy.
0: Well, I so imagine if it's a Lord it's of the, the- Re- yeah, yeah, I was, was going to say. I imagine it's like a lot of anything, you can take it as seriously or as casually as you want to. And if the people yep. you're engaged with are at the same level of seriousness, then you can have a great time. When you get exactly, when you, there's They're someone connected. that. Like, and the term amateur just means someone that loves doing something. It's someone that loves it. But yep. you don't have to know anything about it to love it. But it's no, nice. Exactly. At, but there is a, a huge, I imagine, and you can speak to this if you like, a range of. Of um and I guess seriousness is the word mm-hmm. I would use as far as how they it t- approach it, how accurate they want to be, how how yeah. involved they want to be off the off the field.
1: Right. Well that, that? that's the beautiful thing about well, LARPing for one, because they're really I, I mean the groups, depending on, on the level they're at, are gonna have they have certain standards that they have to meet or, or that they've set down. So you, as long as you're within those, you're fine. Um, but something like the SCA, for example, the great thing about that is they they cover basically from about 500, so the fall of the Roman Empire, all the way up to 1500, 1550, so into the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. So there's a thousand years worth of, you know, plus worth of time to get in there. So you can pick anything within that period and do it to whatever level of accuracy or not accuracy you want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, There's been a big swing in the last uh, few years to Viking. Everyone's been going Viking because it's been on TV. It's kind of the in thing. It's the the cool kids thing to do, uh, which is great. You know, as long as people take it seriously and don't fall into the the pit of the Viking show, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. And you know what I mean? Try to try to do if you're going to do Viking, do it historical.
0: Right. And I mean, there are certain. And there are certain aspects of the Viking culture that are not really something you would want to emulate. I mean, we're, ta- we're talking about yeah. just purely the fun aspect, as we imagine fun to yeah. be, of just playing with swords and, this, and laughing and enjoying your day. Yeah. We're not trying to exactly. suggest you go out and become a Viking. <laughs> no, exactly. And, <laughs> in and daily we, life,
1: We recognize the good and the bad. We mm. want to emulate more of the good, obviously, than the bad, yeah. but we don't overshadow the bad. Yeah. Um, we're we're not sort of falling into that whole cancel culture kind of thing where we we, we just deny this happened. Yeah. Um, for example, with the Vikings, slavery was very common. It was the norm for for the
0: Viking culture, and you, and you need to, to have slaves. Of, yeah, and it needs to be yeah, acknowledged, you do. and it, and it needs to be acknowledged. And if you are going to enjoy the fun ends of it, you have to acknowledge the bad and recognize that we're, you're not trying to emulate. <laughs> the actual yeah
1: it, it was acceptable for them at the time it's not acceptable for us but so we're not going to reproduce it of but course, of course it happened right yeah. so it, it and that's the important thing with any history is that you acknowledge what happened whether you accept it or or or, or yeah accept it or not yeah it's in context you can't you forget context about it. it's the context exactly that's Ooh. exactly it
0: let me ask you about it because as a person There's always a danger when you know a lot about a subject. It makes it very difficult sometimes to enjoy something that is not quite accurate for example my my wife loves coffee she knows a lot about coffee she can't appreciate a bad cup of coffee whereas i know very little so i can enjoy a rotten cup of coffee and not yep. know any better so i wanted to ask you as, a, as an entertainer yourself what are some of your favorites and not without without being too brutal what are what are some shows that you think could use a little tweaking uh yeah that that's a that's a really
1: really good one. I know I've ticked my wife off a lot watching period movies or anything like that and I just start rattling off about the bad things and and she just I just want to enjoy it. Yeah. Um <laughs> All
0: right, so let's start, let's start with the shows that you really that you you want to like but there's just something off that that doesn't get you going and then we can end with some of the positive ones. Sure. Sure. I would have liked nothing
1: more to have loved the show Vikings. Okay. Um, when I heard that it was happening, I thought, oh my God, are they going to do this right? They didn't. Um, <laughs> the, the, the simplest thing, I mean, the, the historical aspect of it, okay, they got some of that right. They tweaked it a bit like you do for Hollywood. Uh, but something as simple as the costumes. Yeah. How can you screw up tea tunics? I mean, that's all that the, the garb was, was varying styles of tea tunic, of various decorations. The higher you were, the better they were. And and armor, you know, chainmail, Like mail, again, the higher-up nobles would have had mail. But again, they they screwed up on a lot. What um, did they do? i have not familiar with the show.
0: So I don't know the show very well. Well, they, they,
1: they, they had this penchant for woven leather tunics and, and just really weird, tight-fitting you know, skin tight. They look like punk punk pirates. That that is very
0: Hollywood. That's that's a Hollywood thing. It's very Hollywood tighter.
1: And exactly. It's gotta be tight. It's gotta be and and no. I mean Vikings, depending on where they were from, were known for, you know, big poofy pants Mm -hmm. and and you know nice tunics. And it's such a rich culture. And it just I think what burns me more is that they are not pulling on that rich visual culture Mm -hmm. that they could. And and they're just throwing this quite literally crud out there for 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 the masses that will take it regardless because they just enjoy the the subject matter and mm-hmm. that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But any one of us that are into the reenactment, historical,
0: anything like that, go. Ah! Well, I'm always I'm know, always uh, I'm always reminded of uh, Have you seen the full Monty? The movie. Yes. That's, okay, there's a great scene yep. where these welders are trying to learn how to dance. And they're watching yep. Flashdance. And all they can focus on is how she clearly doesn't know what she's doing as far as welding goes. Her welding <laughs> exactly. technique is abominable.
1: <laughs> now, on the other side of things, where I watch a show and I go, this is absolutely fantastic, was a show called The Northmen. And it was is that basically the comedy a parody.
0: Show? I love yep. that show. That show made me yeah, howl.
1: It, oh, it was fantastic. It's a parody of basically Vikings. It, yeah, th- th- there's some issues with their costumes. that. But the fact that it's a parody, I can see past that because mm. of that. There was one scene which just absolutely had me on the floor laughing was when one of the Vikings came out wearing horns on his helmet. And he got completely dissed by two of the other characters for this thing and how stupid it looked. And <laughs> it would never catch on. And it was just awful. And I just I killed myself laughing. You know, so those kind of parodies, I can totally appreciate.
0: It's just a delightful watch because they contemporize oh. everything. And we forget that whatever period we're talking about, the people were at that time contemporary. So yeah. their contemporary. relations with one another are not that much different than our relations with one another on a on a one-on-one bit level. And exactly. I just, I just loved the way that show was put out. It, it could, it was if, for those who haven't seen it. It's like the office set. Yeah. In, you know, Pretty in, much, you yeah. know a thousand years ago. So, okay. So Ian, thank you. I want to thank you for taking your time. We're, or zoom things about the, no uh, before I let you go, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time on your Sunday. To chat with us. Uh, this is going to go out tomorrow, as you know. What yeah. what advice would you give to someone who is uh, perhaps a young person, perhaps a not so young person that has been watching you know, a lot of the media with, you know, Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings and you know, the sword play has kind of been something that they've wanted to pursue and get interested in. Uh, where what would you suggest should their their first step be if they want to learn more about um Sword play, sword fighting, building of swords, just getting involved in that community, where would you suggest they start?
1: I mean, I, I'm always open to talking to people and advising them if anyone wants to get in touch with me. The SCA is good because there are groups in every major town. There's one here, for example, in Guelph. Uh, KW has one. Toronto has like three or four. So they're all over Ontario, for example. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're interested in that and finding more information, you can check them out online uh, and and just go to a local meeting uh there'll be schedules online for all those in the particular city you're in and you know dip your toe in test it out and sure. you'll you might find that you've found a home
0: yeah. You know? I, I think it's a great and it is it's all about community building. It Whatever is. your community totally. is, there's a community of people who love what you love. It's great to at least know who they are and get advice, get feedback. And this is why I like talking to you about it, because I know you're a welcoming person. I know that if anyone does come to you with questions, you'll you'll treat them with respect and you'll help put I them in the eggs. right direction. <laughs> uh, because you're because you're a good egg. Well, know? thank you. I appreciate and If that. I were to ride into battle I'll be at the back. You'll be at the front. Tell me how I'll it goes. I'll be in front of you for sure. Tell me yeah. how it goes. <laughs> Best of luck to you. Uh, Ian Walsh has been with us, and uh, I want to thank you again, Ian. Anything you want to leave before we, before we cut you loose here?
1: Uh, just thank you again. It's been a, a great hour with you, and uh, yeah, if anyone's interested in anything we do, whether it's stage combat, the reenactments, or just having fun, check out the website, give us an email, and I'll help you direct you wherever you need to be.
0: Ian, I wish you well, and if you can fight like a Viking, I can drink like a Viking. We're going to get along just fine. Perfect, mate. Take care. And that will just about do it for this week's installment of Mondo Rando Radio on midtownradio.ca. My name's been Randolph Jay. Thank you for joining us. And my special thanks also to Ian Walsh, whose experience and opinions are unique and entirely his own. If you have questions for Ian, he can be reached through his website, blackthornproductions.ca. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and we'll catch you again next week. Bye-bye for now.